0: Well, good morning. It is a delight to be with you all this morning. I feel like uh, to some degree I uh, know you, Uh, Jeff Standridge, being a student at RTS, uh, we've been able to uh, get to know him a little bit and get to know some of what's going on here at the congregation. And uh, we'll definitely try to be in prayer for you guys as you're seeking uh, a new pastor. I know that is a time of transition uh, within the congregation that oftentimes can be unsettling, and we'll pray that the Lord will be able to provide the right man uh, at the right time uh, for you all. I want to look this morning at Luke chapter 15, and so if you have a copy of the Bible handy, if you could take that out and turn with me to Luke chapter 15, I want to read the entire chapter. There are three parables here. Uh, At least according to the ESV, which is what I'll be reading from, uh, there are three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son, or we might say the parable of the lost son. Uh, These three parables, I want to read all three of them. They're very familiar to you all, no doubt, but follow along as we read from Luke chapter 15 uh, as I read and lead us in, in this reading together. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, that is, Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country, There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there... And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe in the south. Excuse me. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look. You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Amen. Let's pray together. Our great God and King, our Father, who is in heaven. We come, Father, in the name of Jesus, we come asking that you would draw near by your Spirit, that you would remind us of all that we need to be reminded of, that you'd remind us of all that Jesus is for us in the Gospel, and that you would take this word of yours and that you would drive it home to our hearts, to our minds, to our souls like nails, holding the truth fast, therein. And Father, I pray that you'd receive the praise and the glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It may well be that one of the weaknesses of the Reformed faith, this faith that we cherish that we hold so dear the truths of which we hold so dear, it may well be that one of the weaknesses in our own day of the Reformed faith is that we have made too little of the love of God. As I think about where we stand today and where Reformed theology stands today, I think we make much of the sovereignty of God. We make much of the holiness of God. Of God, We make much of the glory of God, but how much do we really make of the love of God? As I think through this in my own life, there are at least three reasons why uh, in our lives the love of God and meditating on the love of God is something that we need to be doing. The first is ministry. If you've ever served in ministry, if you've ever served in a volunteer capacity in the church, you will know that ministry uh, brings criticism. If you've ever chaired a committee or a ministry team, you'll know that quite well. Ministry brings criticism. John Piper has a fantastic example uh, in which he says that ministry is like, it's like going to a hall of mirrors you've ever been to the old-fashioned carnivals where you walk into this hall of mirrors and you've got one mirror and you look in this mirror and you're short and fat. You look into this mirror and you're tall and thin. You look into yet another one and you're upside down completely. And Piper says that ministries oftentimes like that. You look into the eyes of this person, and they tell you you're short and you're fat. They look, you look into the eyes of this person, and their feedback, their criticism is you're tall and thin. You look into the eyes of yet another, and they tell you you're completely upside down. How do we hold the center in the midst of that kind of feedback? Because the temptation is, isn't it, when we're serving in some kind of capacity, whether it's as a volunteer or whether it's in a paid position, the temptation is to believe or is to respond to those feedback. When someone tells us we're short and fat, well, the temptation is then to go on a diet, to to, to, to try to get rid of that problem, if you will, respond to that feedback. When someone tells us that we're tall and thin, the temptation is then to respond by, by eating more, right? and trying to to alleviate that situation. When someone tells us we're completely upside down, the temptation is again to respond to that. And before long, we're bouncing off of feedback, and feedback here and there, and we've completely lost track of who we are in Christ. i found in ministry, in serving in the church, that it's the love of God that is the, the buoyancy. It's the love of God that is the ballast that keeps us afloat in the midst of the storms of criticism and other people's opinions. And so I found just in meditating on the love of God in ministry, this is a tremendous need for those of us who are serving in some kind of capacity in ministry. But secondly... The Bible tells us that Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And I think one of the things, one of the platforms that Satan uses to tear us limb from limb is our own sin. And when we sin, and maybe when we sin in ways that we've been sinning for our entire lives. You know what I'm talking about. There are some sins in our lives that we are just prone to, if you will. They fit us well. Whether it's gossip, whether it's materialism, whether it's lust, whatever it may be, there's something that is uniquely ours. And we've struggled with it more than likely for our entire lives. And probably will continue to. And when we sin in these same ways, Satan inevitably comes to us and he says, how can you call yourself a Christian? God doesn't love you. How can you think that? You see, it's in times not only of serving in the church that we need to be reminded of the love of God, but it's in times of temptation and in times when we've given in to temptation that we need to be reminded of the love of God for us. But thirdly, you and I have a tendency as Christians to read, our, to read the love of God in light of our circumstances rather than the other way around. Rarely do we read circumstances in light of the love of God. We almost always read the love of God in light of our circumstances. And when our circumstances are good, we're convinced God loves us. When our circumstances are bad, we're not quite so convinced. And we may even say that God is against us. And so I am convinced no matter where we are today, in ministry, in service in the church, in sin, struggling with sin and temptation, or just struggling with the circumstances, circumstances that may not be our choosing, you and I need to be reminded of the incomparable love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. And that, I am convinced, is what Luke 15 is all about. Luke 15 gives us three well-known parables. According to the English Standard Version, the titles are given in the headings, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. But if you look at what Jesus is doing here, I want to argue this is really only one parable that Jesus is telling in three ways. Look, if you will, if you have your Bibles, and if you don't have your Bibles, let me encourage you to take your Bibles out again. turn Turn to Luke 15 and keep them open on your laps. In front of you because we will be looking at this passage together this morning. In verse 3, Jesus responds to the Pharisees. You see what's going on is the tax collectors and the sinners are flocking to Jesus. It's not the religious people who look good on the outside or who know or think they're good on the outside, right, that are flocking to Jesus. Rather, they had trouble with Jesus, but it's the tax collectors. It's the sinners, They're flocking to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling because of it. Who is this man? Maybe, maybe they thought that Jesus was tarnishing his reputation by entertaining tax collectors and sinners, by allowing these notoriously sinful, notoriously evil people who had bad reputations in the community, maybe they thought that he was tarnishing his reputation by allowing them to come after him and to, by associating himself with them. That's possible. But whatever their motives, whatever their thinking was, they had a misunderstanding about the love of God because they were grumbling and complaining that sinners were clamoring after Jesus. And so Jesus tells one parable. Look at verse 3. So Jesus told them this parable. Jesus tells one parable here in Luke chapter 15, but he tells it in three different ways. Because he wants the Pharisees to see three different things about the love of God. And if the Pharisees and the scribes actually knew these three things about the love of God, then they would never have been grumbling and complaining about tax collectors and sinners clamoring after him. And so for a few moments this morning, I want to take some time. And as I tell folks, there's no clock at the back of the room, so that is, uh, uh, here's one up here in the front, good, Uh, we can make sure we stay on time, Jeff told me I had an hour and a half to preach this morning, so uh, if uh, if that's not your customary uh, time allotment, you can blame that on him, and just take it out on him this morning. (laughs) Um, We'll look at Luke chapter 15, three things I want us to look at, one from each of these forms of the one parable that Jesus is telling in Luke 15. Look first at this, what's called the parable of the lost sheep. And here, I think, in telling this parable, what Jesus wants us to see about the love of God is that the love of God is such that no expense is spared. That no expense is spared. Jesus says in verse 3, What man of you having a hundred sheep? If he has lost one, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that was lost until he finds it. You see what Jesus is saying. He's speaking the language that the people of the first century would have understood. The language of shepherding. And he says, What shepherd is there among you who, when one of your sheep is lost, will not leave the ninety-nine in the open country? Isn't that fascinating? Jesus says, you will leave 99 of your sheep in the open country ready for any predator to come along and pick them off. There's nothing there to protect them. There's nothing there except the company of uh, of numbers. They've got 99 versus maybe one predator that may come against them. But isn't that fascinating? To go after the one that is lost. You see, the world in which we live which is utilitarian, will tell us that's, that's, that doesn't work. That math is wrong. You don't leave the 99 to go after the one. You leave the one for the greater good of the 99. But praise God, the love of God is not utilitarian. The love of God is such that He is willing to spare the 99 for the sake of the one. He's willing to sacrifice the 99 for the sake of the one that is lost. When I've preached on this in the past, the questions that have come from folks in the congregation have been from those who have been Christians for a long time. And they consider themselves not as lost sheep, but as those who are in the the sheep pen already. They look at this parable and they think, I'm one of the 99 because I'm already in the sheepfold. I'm not lost that Jesus has to go and find. That's not the point of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not saying he's going to leave 99 of his own people behind. We're, 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 we're trying to draw too much out of this parable. Jesus is, is, is teaching one main lesson. The lesson is not about the 99. The lesson's about the one. And if you are a Christian here this morning, you are the one. Every Christian is the one who's lost in this parable. And what Jesus is saying to you is the love of God is such that it spares no expense. He'll leave 99 sheep behind. He'll leave 99% of all that he owns, if you will, behind for the sake of the 1% for the sake of the one. And isn't that what the cross is all about? Isn't that what the cross was all about? Romans 8:32 Paul says that he who gave he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You see what Paul's saying? God's already given you his son. He hasn't withhold he hasn't withheld from you his most valuable possession. He's given you everything that he can give you, his son. How now is he going to withhold anything else that you need? He's given us, he's not spared the 99 already for the sake of the one. One of my favorite hymns, it's an old-time hymn, but one of my favorite hymns is one that you guys will know well. It's How Great Thou Art. Stuart Hine, I think, wrote the words to that uh, many years ago, How Great Thou Art. And in that hymn, verse 3, is probably my favorite. Verse 3 goes something like this. And if I don't get the words exactly right, those of you who are a little bit older and probably know that hymn uh, by heart, uh, please give me some grace on that. But it goes something like this. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. What comes next? Then sings my soul, my Savior God, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. You see what he was saying there. He's saying, and when I think, when I think about The fact that God's love spares no expense, when I think that God, His Son, not sparing, then sings my soul. See, what He rightly recognized is when you and I can understand that the love of God spares no expense, and it spared no expense at the cross, in the person, in and through the work of Jesus Christ, when we think about that, it ought to lead us to sing how great thou art. How great thou art. That's the the love of God held out to us in Christ Jesus. There's no expense that is spared, Jesus says. But secondly, in the parable of the lost coin, The way that Jesus tells the parable here, I think he wants us to see that no detail is left unattended to. No detail in our lives is left unattended to. If you look at this parable here, Jesus tells the same basic parable, but he tells it in a slightly different way. Instead of one sheep out of 99, excuse me, one sheep out of 100 or 1% being lost, now there's a woman who has 10 silver coins and she loses one of them or 10% of what she owns. She loses And we're told that when she loses this one coin, uh, Jesus says, What woman, having lost one of ten, or ten percent of what she owns, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? That one word, diligently, in the ESV seems to be the major difference between this second telling of the parable and the first Jesus' whole point in the first was about the sacrifice that Jesus is willing to make, that God is willing to make for the one sheep who is lost. The second telling, Jesus is telling us something about the love of God. It's diligent. That's how the love of God seeks after the one thing that is lost, the one sheep, the one coin, the one son. It seeks in a diligent way. The word could also be translated thorough or careful. The idea here seems to be that the love of God is thorough. It is careful just as this woman in seeking diligently in her home would, have not, would not have left one stone unturned. If you lost ten dollars or $15,000, which would be the, a modern-day equivalent to what this woman lost, if you lost ten dollars or $15,000, what length would you go to to find that ten dollars or $15,000? You'd search everywhere. You'd leave no stone unturned. You'd leave no detail unturned unattended to. And that's exactly the point here. The love of God is such in our lives that it leaves no stone unturned. It leaves no detail unattended to. You see, God didn't just love us to to the point where we come to faith in Christ. But God loves us in such a way that we come to faith in Christ. And we persevere in faith. In Christ so that one day we will be with God in heaven that's the love of God he loves us to the end not the beginning of our salvation and so the promise here held out to us is that the love of God is such that he will leave no stone unturned in our lives he will be diligent he will be thorough in our lives, to make sure that you and I not only come to faith in Christ, but we continue in faith in Christ, and that we will be in heaven with Him forevermore. Samuel Rutherford, um, Scottish minister in the 17th century, <clears throat> had a variety of really helpful sayings that have been a blessing to me over the years. One of them went something like this. He said, when you and I get to heaven, we're going to look back over the course of our lives. However long that was, 80 years, 90 years, 50 years, right? However long the Lord gives us on this earth, we're going to look back over the years God has given to us in glory, looking back over time and space, and we're going to see that if anything had happened to us in our lives other than what did happen to us, we would never have arrived in heaven. That's hard for us to imagine now. But what he's saying is that through all of the good, the bad, and the ugly, through all of the hard times in our lives, times when we oftentimes think God is silent, He's absent, and we shake our fist at Him and say, how could you do this to me? Why is this happening? What he's trying to get us to see is the love of God is such that even those hard times, if they would not have happened, we would never have made it to heaven. We'd have backslidden somewhere along the way. We'd have turned aside in comfort, in ease, in apathy. Whatever it may be, we would never have arrived in heaven. And so the love of God is such that He is doing what He has to do in our lives. He's always as drastic as necessary and yet as gentle as possible in our lives. He's doing exactly what he has to do and no more to ensure that we're there with him. He leaves no stone unturned. He's diligent, he's thorough, he's careful. And that's the second thing that Jesus wants us to see about the love of God. The third thing is that there's no sin that is too great. No sin that is too great. In this parable of the lost son, here, as we said, we started with the parable of the lost sheep. And one out of a hundred is lost. In the parable of the lost coin, we have one out of ten that is lost. In the parable of the lost son, we have one out of two is lost 50 percent if you will of what this father had if you will his sons he lost and this retelling of this of this of this account of the story of the lost son what Jesus wants us to see is the rebellion of this younger son this younger son you know the story you don't need me to rehearse it before you but this story Jesus tells the younger son comes to his father and he basically, in rebellion, tells his father that he wants nothing to do with him. He says, you're as good as dead to me. I don't want your presence in my life. I don't want you in my life. All I want is your money. Give to me what the law says you owe me when you're dead. I want you dead now, basically. Give me what I'm entitled to at your death. You think about that. How many times in our sin and rebellion have we said the same thing to God? Casting off his fetters, wanting nothing to do with him, shaking our fist in his face, right? That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. This younger son wants nothing to do with his father. And the law said, the law said that the older son got twice the inheritance that the younger son got. With two sons, it meant the older son got two-thirds of what the father owned, and the younger son got one-third. So the younger son comes and says, I want my one-third of your estate, my one-third of everything you're worth, I want it now. Undoubtedly, that meant the father had to sell off part of the estate to be able to find one-third of everything that he had and give it to his son. And the amazing thing is that he does. I don't know what I would do if my son came to me and asked for one. Well, actually, I do know what I would do, right? I'd say, there's the door. See you later, right? I'd probably laugh, and then I'd say, I'd get angry and say, no way, right? (laughs) I'm not giving you one-third of my estate now. I'm not giving you anything now, right? See you later, if that's your attitude, right? Uh, If you don't want me in your life, fine. You you won't won't get me in your life, right? Um, I think that would be my attitude. But the father here doesn't treat his son that way. When the son asks for one third of his estate and says, I don't want you, I just want your money, the father gives it to him. But then look what the son does the son takes that one third. excuse me, of the estate, and he blows it. He spends it in riotous living, reckless living. We're told that he threw parties. We're told in verse 30 that he spent it on prostitutes. So he goes out, and he has a, a, a wild time, and he blows through the money and wastes it. This sacrifice the father had to make in selling off part of his land to give this request to this rebellious son, the son takes it and he squanders it. And how does the son, how does the father respond? The father waits till he sees him, and then his, his hands are, you gonna see his hands are just, you know, he just can't wait to see his son, so he can laugh in his face and tell him, I told you so. I told you you never amount to anything. Right? No, that's not what happens. The father, no matter what's going on, no doubt, his eyes are always on the horizon. He's hoping, he's been praying that his son will come home. And he's longing for the sight of his son cresting the horizon. And when he finally sees him, he runs to him. We're told he girds up his loins. Right? He literally takes the robe and wraps it around his waist, if you will, undignified for a man in that culture and he runs to his son. Throws the robe on his shoulders. The ring for the family on his finger. Kills the fattened calf and they throw a celebration for the son that was dead was now alive. The son that was lost is now found. You see, the picture that Jesus is painting out for us is the love of God is such that it's not just that no expense is spared and it's not just that no detail is left attended, unattended to, but it's such that there's no sin that is too great. The rebellion of this younger son was nothing. Despite all of that rebellion, despite All of the waste and the squandering and the reckless living, despite all of that, the Father treats the Son as if none of it had happened. When I first became a Christian, the definition I learned for justification, right that great Protestant doctrine of the faith that the Reformation was founded on, justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, the first definition for justification, how we find our acceptance in God's sight, was just as if I'd never sinned. How many of you guys have learned that at one point? Well I, my years growing as a Christian, I've come to see that justification is far more than that, but it's certainly not less. And this passage is holding that truth out to us. Because the Father treats the Son in the midst of His rebellion, in the midst of His sin, in the midst of His enmity, toward the Father, the Father treats Him just as if He'd never rebelled. Just as if He'd never squandered His property. Just as if none of these things that He actually had done, He had had ever done. And I think what Jesus wants us to see is that this is the love of God held out for you and me in the gospel. Jesus says to us, the Father treats us in the midst of our rebellion, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our squandering of the possessions that He entrusts to us, our gifts, our money, everything that God has given to us, you and I have squandered it. Maybe not with prostitutes, but we've squandered it. We've lived our lives in rebellion against Him. And Jesus says the love of God is such that God treats us just as if we'd never sinned. Because He treated Jesus just as if He'd lived your life and mine just as if he had lived a life of rebellion just as if he had squandered everything that God had given him that is the love of God that is held out to us in and through Christ some of you may know the name Fyodor Dostoevsky 19th century novelist wrote Crime and Punishment, among other things as well. Dostoevsky was a believer and on his deathbed he was able to gather his family around him as he was taking his final breaths and he read to them the parable of the prodigal son in the moments before he died. And this is what he said as his, father, as his family was gathered around. This is what he said after reading the parable of the prodigal son. He said, my children... Never forget what you have just heard. Have absolute faith in God and never despair of His pardon. I love you dearly, but my love is nothing compared with the love of God. Even if you should be so unhappy as to commit a crime in the course of your life, never despair of God. Humble yourself before him. Implore his pardon and he will rejoice over you as the father rejoiced over the prodigal son. You see, that's the hope of the gospel. It's that God loves us and he loves us to the end because of Christ. We stand this morning in God's sight, robed, the family robe, the robe of Christ's righteousness around our shoulders. And we hear, well done, well done, my good and faithful servant. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. Write its truths upon our hearts, we pray. Bless us and make us a blessing. Fill us with your spirit. Give us a greater appreciation for the love of Christ that is ours. Father, we pray that you fill our hearts with a knowledge that you spare no expense for us. That you leave no detail unattended to in our lives. And that nothing in our lives, no sin, no rebellion is too great, is outside of your love and forgiveness. Bless us, Father, we pray today. For it's in Jesus' name we pray it.